I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hi, we're Muses, and we bring you the stories of the coolest, most amazing women in music. That's right, and that's why we're sitting here with Pleasant Gaiman, because you are one of the coolest women, not just in music, but ever, ever, ever. And you are also our first interview. So thank you. This is an amazing thing to have you come back and not only come back, but we're sitting here in your home in L.A. In Hollywood. Yeah. So welcome. Pleasant. Welcome. Hi, you guys. You gals. How are you doing? I'm good. We've just. um, okay. so extreme transparency. We just had a nice meal. We're a little bit tipsy. We've been having Prosecco and red wine, and now we just ate ice cream, and we're in the middle of Hollywood, so if you hear a police helicopter going or something that sounds like Godzilla attacking, it's because we're in the red zone of central Hollywood. Everything that you just named is exactly where I'd hoped I would ever be in my (laughs) lifetime, doing all of those things in this exact place so dreams do come true the t-shirt the large oversized t-shirt that i wear to bed that says dreams do come true full transparency is real well it's just it's just like a huge deal for me because i've known about you for a long time and i've followed you on social media and we've talked here and there and just being able to actually be here and meet you and hang out and is just 
get an energy healing from you. Oh, yes. And a, and a tarot reading. Like, this is my trip like is being made right now. <laughs> Thank you. This was top of my list of things I wanted to do while we were here. And uh, yeah, it's just, I'm just, I'm very happy in this moment. Where did you learn how to make such a great salad? I don't know. I, I, I love to cook. I'm like, for someone that's like a... Um, like a, a lunatic rock and roll person. Like both of my parents were really good cooks and both of their parents were, but I'm, I'm just like a sort of a hurricane kind of slob. Like I just like, I do a lot of stuff. I make a lot of messes. And when I was like little, it was Thanksgiving or something. And, and um, my grandma had been cooking all day. And at the end of everyone eating, like she started clearing the table and, People were like, oh, no, 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 sit down. Wait, what are those noises? I don't know. The door is <laughs> opening on its own? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. <laughs> Who's joining us? My house is totally haunted. My goodness. That's interesting because we were just talking about all that. And then the door just opens on its own. Look at it. It's open. <laughs> That was crazy. <laughs> no, I know. Okay, so backstory. Um, I'm on, I'm on the Muses podcast now, but we just did an interview on my podcast, The Devil's Music, and we were talking about all sorts of haunted shit. And like, I was telling them how haunted my house was. And and after we even went out of the recording, I was telling them how haunted Hollywood in general is. <laughs> and now we're experiencing it for ourselves. Of course, it would be here. All good. You said that we just have to talk. Say, hey, how's it going? We come in peace. Yeah, join us. Listen. Apparently, they already did. No. Elvis, yeah. is that you, Elvis? It could be, but it could, it could be, it could be like Marion Davies, or it could, Maybe. It, it could be Peg Entwistle, the lady that jumped off the thirteenth yeah, letter of the Hollywood sign when it used to say Hollywood Land. Yeah, there's some stories up here. Huh? Yeah, where. We're in the Hollywood Hills and it's super haunted up here. We're we're in a, a house that's like well over 100 years old right now doing this recording with possibly another police helicopter circulating over our heads. So anyway, back to the cooking. Um, I was always a slob and I still am because like I feel like I need servants. Every nail polish color I wear, when people ask what it is, I just say it's called I need servants. <laughs> <laughs> but so when I heard my grandma say... I, like she started cleaning the table and everyone was like, sit down, sit down. You cooked. And I remember I was like, I was like four or five and I was like, got to learn how to cook. <laughs> because <laughs> cooking is fun. It's like chemistry, but cleaning, who who wants to do it? I need servants. Very true. And when did you become a vegetarian? You know, um, almost all my life I was. I've not put on me from parents or anything. Mm -hmm. I've never eaten a hot dog in my entire life. I've never eaten bologna or salami. It all it all smelled like poison to me. Yeah. And I remember adults saying when I was really small, like, well, how do you know you don't like it? You should try it. And I was like, no. Yeah. Like that. And I've gone through periods of eating meat sometimes, and it usually later would wind up that I was anemic because, mm -hmm. like, I don't know why I craved it, but, like, I would just sometimes be like, I need meat. Yeah. But um, la later... You know, like later, uh, in no context of time. No, uh, like probably like 20 years ago, someone gave me the um, the book Eat Right for Your Blood Type. 
And I have a, a rare blood type. It's a negative, and I think only about 2% of people in the world have it. And it, we were supposed to be natural vegetarians. So I was just oh. going with what I felt like or what smelled like poison to yeah. me. And just meat just smelled like poison. Yeah. And that was before I even knew about like factory farming or anything mm-hmm. gross and scary and horrible that has to do with vegetarianism. Yeah. I don't get how people nowadays are enjoying their meat, cause knowing all the things that are put into them and yeah, and just like, what they're doing to the environment too. Like, yeah. No, or how, or how animals get killed or any exactly, of that. But exactly. even, when I was little, I didn't know about any of that. I just, it was natural. It just smelled like poisonous to me. Yeah. So. My dad's the same. He's a vegetarian. Always has been, just hates the smell, hates the uh, taste, just everything didn't appeal to him. Yeah. I definitely didn't have hot dogs mixed in with my macaroni and cheese before I came on this trip. Did you put ketchup on it too? No, but TJ did. That's my boyfriend. It was his meal. It was his request. He was going away to Mexico for the month. And he said, hey, before I go, can we have some hot dogs and some, we call it craft dinner. We don't call it macaroni and cheese, like craft dinner. And I said, oh, yeah. I, I said anything. Like with a K. I said any. Like craft work. Anything for <laughs> exactly. you. And um, I won't be doing that again anytime soon. But look, I did it. That's an interesting choice for our last meal. I admire both of you, but. Oh, I don't, I don't judge anybody about any of that stuff. Like, yeah. whatever anybody puts in their mouth, whether they're eating it or just uh, sucking it, <laughs> that's their own business. Amazing. Yeah, it is. Very true. So we just had an energy healing from you, and I have a couple of questions about that because... I once had a song written about me about having a healing touch. And then I recently posed nude for the Goddess Array book. For, and there's a photographer in Toronto. My mother actually posed as well. She was the goddess of the moon and I ended up being the goddess of healing. So all of these things kind of keep coming up in my life. But it kind of seems like everybody in Toronto who do like the Reiki and energy healing kind of thing just kind of seem like spiritual bypassers and full of it. How can I like explore that part of myself because the way you did it was like so authentic and real and not come off as just like another like idiot trying to be like let me heal you well when, um i mean a lot of people think what i do is reiki and it's not i could always do it but i i call I, okay i'm outing myself on the air right now i used to just call it fakey uh like in the past, as an adult, I'd call it fakey because it's not Reiki. Okay. <laughs> but um, I think I could always do it because when I was little, I'd find like a like an injured chipmunk or like lots and lots of like little baby birds, like fledglings that fell out of their nests or like, I'd, like you know, when I was growing up in the 60s and the 70s, there wasn't like the spay-neuter stuff like they have now. So there'd always be like stray cats and kittens all over the place and I'd find like a sick animal mm-hmm. and I would just hold it and think I was praying and then they would just get better and then they'd be my pet. So I think I could always do this. Um, but it just, I started realizing, I'm going to sound completely batshit now, but I'm fine with it. <laughs> like for years and years, people would call me Carrie or fire starter because I have an electrical problem or I don't think it's a problem anymore, but I'm one of those people that um, that others call electrical people. Like I have a really weird disturbance in my electromagnetic field. Like I can, I can make, I can walk into a bank and all the computers will freeze, 
or into an office, that'll happen. Or um, if I if I go under streetlights or go even like walk into a, like a rock and roll club or anything, like the lights will start flickering. I noticed a light flicker in here right when we started recording. Did you guys notice that? No, but to me it's normal. Yeah. <laughs> wow, the light flickering, the door opening. Yeah. They were about at the same time. Oh, so that, yeah, so that was probably a ghost. There's lots lots of ghosts live in this house, along with me and my cats. But I just always had, like, I used to, like, when, when I was teaching dance classes in the days of CDs, if people weren't getting a, a, a certain step or a combination, I would always either start telling them wild stories so they'd get their mind off of the choreography. But if that didn't work, sometimes I'd go, you guys watch this. And there'd be like, I'd be teaching belly dancing and there'd be like an Arabic CD on and I'd hold my hand about a foot over the CD player. And I would start just sort of like waving it a little bit back and forth. And then a radio station would come in and you could hear that, like the news over the CD player. And then be all, whoa, whoa, how are you doing that? And I'd be like, watch this. And I'd slide my hand like quickly to the left or the right and then the station would change and then it would do it again and again I know and then people would try to do it and they couldn't do it that's so crazy and anyway it's called it's called the EPK which means electropsychokinesis and a lot of people actually have it like I can't wear a watch I kill watches that's been my whole life um I've been on movie sets where I exploded the lights or like froze the camera I've been in recording sessions where like I freeze like the mixing board or the dap machine malfunctions and for a long time Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. I'm in a good mood now because I'm all grounded and happy. But um it used to happen usually when I was nervous or tired or exhausted or just sort of emotional. But I didn't notice that for so long and I thought I was keeping a big secret in the closet until I, I started realizing that people were behind my back calling me Firestarter and Carrie. Thank you, Stephen King, <laughs> for giving me all my nicknames. I right? guess that is hard to like not notice, though, if it's your energy and every time you're kind of in a room, like this kind of crazy stuff happens. It seems like you've channeled it for good as well. Yeah, well, when I started doing healing, like, professionally, I mean, like, I, I was always healing, like, but... When I started realizing that it was something that I could actually do and I was doing it all the time, it was crazy because I started working on it and I lost so much weight. Like I, I didn't even notice this, but within about less than three weeks or a month, like none of my dance costumes could fit me and my clothes weren't, you know, they were too loose, but I didn't connect it to the energy healing for a while. And then it got to the point where I got in public and people go, wow, you look great are you okay? Yeah. Like that. Or like, or like, you've got to start eating something. Why are you on this crash diet? And I'd be like, I'm not, I'm eating everything. I want to eat the furniture. Yeah. I feel like Rambo. And then I started realizing, okay, it's energy. So I've been like trying to work on it. I, I thought of it in a dancer way. Like I would try to work on it, like as though it was a muscle. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing it like for endurance to see how long can I do this? How long can I focus on it? And then I was like, oh, okay, so of course I'm losing weight, but I just didn't even like connect it to yeah. that. And I did for a while get so skinny. When I see pictures from that time period, I look to myself kind of sick. I mean, I wasn't sick. I was eating all the time, but it looks like when someone is, you know, in like some um, movie magazine or tabloid, like shows pictures of an actress going <laughs> like she's gone too far. Yeah. 
that's what it looked like but then it started evening out wow yeah I guess that's a process of learning that you know it's not like you can go to the library or to the doctor and kind of yeah you can't well you can definitely not say shit like that to the doctor (laughs) (laughs) and the the other day on Instagram like I said I I put up a this is so stupid and modern sounding for someone like me that grew up in the 60s I, on, so on Instagram, I posted a picture of this light bulb that I burned out and it looked like black swirled Venetian glass. And I was like, here's some of my latest handiwork. And, um, you know, I described what EPK is, which is um, electropsychokinesis. Like I knew that people weren't going to know what it was. And so I, I described it saying, you know, you can call it SLI, which is streetlight interference or, you know, EPK, or you can just call it an electric person but a lot of people have this mm-hmm. and then I said it's kind of like in in Carrie um but I can't I can't throw John Travolta across a, a gym at will yeah well that's the next step you got to build that up <laughs> yeah definitely I got to figure out how to do that he was hot in that movie though oh my god he was so hot yeah I was a babe back then so was Nancy Allen yeah they were but that that's a three-way I would have definitely <laughs> participated in <laughs> Paid to play, even. Well, speaking of. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what Um, are we speaking of? I have so many questions for you, just random questions. You have the best stories. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the time you spent in New York and what was that scene like for you? Ooh. Wait, I'm I'm getting texts from people I'm dating right now. Ooh. (laughs) Maybe we should ask about that. (laughs) <laughs> well that might be in the past by the time this public podcast comes out but well okay so I'll wait pull a so- card for you and we'll see what uh <laughs> don't what make me touch this person saying. back no. <laughs> wait how fucked up is it that i know we're recording and i don't turn my phone off that wasn't on purpose but so yeah, I was just curious. Talk about some stories in New York. That's like my happy place. Yeah. When I was in New York in the for 70s? New York. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember what what stories did I tell you last time. Do you have any idea? I don't think you told me any New York stories. Oh, That's okay. why I'm asking. Yeah. I'll tell you a great story, which actually I was talking about last night. I don't even remember how it came up, but okay. So I was in New York. I was supposed to go there for two weeks in 1978. And the reason that I I did was because I was like escaping a broken heart here. And I thought I should just reset myself in New York. And I knew Lance Loud and Christian Hoffman of the Mumps. And they had this great, amazing, giant loft on Bowery and Grand, which is now so gentrified. But when we were, you know, when I was living there and when they were living there in that loft, cabs wouldn't even go down there like taxis would not go down there it was the bowery was like a war zone Mm -hmm. it was crazy but also a lot of musicians lived there and so one of their best friends was lydia lunch and she's um, a queen yeah and so like she like she wanted we wanted to meet each other so they invited her over and she the first time i met her she showed up um this was like in September in New York City, so it was so hot. It was it was hot enough in those days with the asphalt they used in New York that if you walked on spike heels, your your feet would just it sort of sink in. into the yeah. pavement like you were in the La Brea Tar Pits. Wow. Um, but so it was that hot. So she showed up at the loft. Um, 
And she was wearing a a, a Spurs t-shirt from San Antonio Spurs, but I didn't know it was a team then. I just know that it said Spurs. Yeah. And it was like a man's t-shirt. So that was like a mini dress on her. And then she had these like really high black patent leather ankle strap spike heels and she didn't have on a bra and she didn't have on an underwear and she'd walked all the way over from where she lived on like avenue c yeah <laughs> or of something course she did. yeah she trotted on over there like that and so the next thing i knew we were in the bathtub together becoming fast friends but i had gone to new york with kid congo who wasn't kid congo yet he was still brian tristan and this was before he joined the cramps and this was just barely at the beginning of the gun club you know yeah. like so he he wasn't known, but he'd been my roommate at a couple of punk houses, and we went to New York together, and we were just planning on staying there for a week, but then it was so hopping. We were like four and a half or five blocks away from CBGB's and just straight shot up the Bowery to like where Max's Kansas City was, and we were like, okay, we want to stay in New York. So we were trying to figure out jobs, and I had pink hair at that point, which was even at 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 that point in 1978, it was not, I mean, it wasn't even common. Like in old school punk rock, this is the thing that people nowadays don't understand. Nobody had tattoos because yeah. most of us were underage and you legally couldn't get a tattoo in LA until you were like 21. And I think in New York, it was 18. And so, yeah. And then even if, even if you had the money, like, and I think tattoos were like maybe 20 bucks or something then for like small ones, but like, you know, why would you do that when you could just, you know, buy Jack Daniels or something? Yeah. So so no one was tattooed. There there wasn't really crazy color. I think that was right about the time that Tish and Snooky were developing it. Yeah. Um, so if you just wore all black, people were scared of you in L.A. or in New York or anywhere. You know, that was already like weird enough. So we were just like wearing black and not tattooed and you know, no piercings or anything unless we did them ourselves with like into a potato with like vodka as a sterilizer (laughs) (laughs) or into an apple or whatever, you know what I mean? Like in our ears, like nobody had really at that point yet thought of like piercing their faces or their noses. So hair was a kind of important thing. I had pink hair. So I was trying to get a job at Phoebe's, this restaurant that was on the it was a little bit farther up towards the Bowery. It was a little bit north of where CBGB's was because that seemed like it was in walking distance and stuff, but they wouldn't hire me because I had pink hair and there wasn't really any other places around there and I didn't feel like wanting to take a subway to work. And I was trying to figure out a job and we just looked weird, you know, so already in LA jobs were like hard, but in New York it was just like, no, I'm not going to go to Queens to try to get a job somewhere or something. And so we were like, we'll just work at Bleaker Bob's, the record store. And um, then we found out that there was like a two-year waiting list for a minimum wage job. Wow. And so um, Lydia Lynch got me into stripping. Amazing. At the, <laughs> I know. She's like, well, at first I wasn't a stripper. She was working at this place called the Wild West Club. And um, it was like one of this whole network of mafia-owned, like, strip places in Times Square. So basically, I was living um, The Deuce, that show that's on TV. (laughs) That was pretty much my life as it was happening. But I wasn't working as as a hooker. I was, like, you know, but a lot of the strippers were. But So she got me a job as a waitress in this strip strip club called The Wild West. I wore this pink Capizio bathing suit that was exactly the color of my hair. And... I looked like I was a fucking fetus. I looked like I was like 11 or 12, but I was, you know, 
And this was your waitress uniform? Yeah, because it was at a strip club, you know? You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. I waitressed for a couple of nights and then I noticed the dancers made a ton more money. So I told Lydia, I don't want to, I don't want to um, be a waitress. I want to dance. And she said, well, have you danced before? And I was like, no, but you know, I could do it. And she's, she said, okay. And she's like, so just go there with heels and a G string. And I said, I don't have a G string. She threw a black G string of hers at me. And she goes, before you return it, wash it. <laughs> So I went up to the boss, whose name was really and truly Rocco. Perfect. And I was like, hey, Rocco, I want to be a dancer. And he goes, oh, okay, have you ever danced before? And I was like, sure. And so he put on like Hot Shot by Carol Young. And I was horrified. Like I I wanted to dance to like the adverts of the Ramones or something. But I was like, all right, I'll just do the disco. (laughs) And so I didn't really know what I was doing. And had on like this little sort of negligee top and a bra. And then Lydia's G-string. And I was just like you know jumping around and then I like did a split because I knew I could do splits and stuff like that so he's like okay you're hired and so I gave her back a g-string and I started working there and I had still even though I was working in this place where they did the the 1950s like b-girl thing like if customers came in if they ordered if they ordered you drinks if you got them to order you a drink or a bottle of champagne you could make a commission on it And in those days also, this is going to just show you how long ago that time period was. They would have Pellegrino water or um, Perrier water, and those were super expensive. And they came with this little like crepe paper fan in them. But those would be like $12, which in those days was astronomical. And the only beer they served to men was near beer. So they weren't drinking. Oh, no way. Yes, way. This was it was a total 50s B-girl setup. So what you would do and but they did have Did the men know they were drinking near beer. I'm pretty sure they probably did because it said it on the label. I mean, it wasn't, you know, but I think they were expecting it to be real beer. But near beer is just like less, way less of a percentage. So they 
if they had a bunch of them, they could get a buzz on. But I see. But, you know, I mean, that's like one of those things of the mechanics of that at that point I didn't notice because I wasn't even old. I, I mean, I'd been drinking in alleys since I was like 12 or 13, but I hadn't really been in a bar before. And suddenly I was working in the strip club. But I knew what B-girls were from watching B-movies. Yeah. So I'd be like sitting there talking to a guy. And for for those of you out there in podcast land, I'm leaning in, acting like I'm saying sweet nothings to some like conventioneer from Cincinnati and it'd be like telling him something and I would just like take the bottle of champagne and refill like both of our glasses and then I would just dump the rest of it into the ice bucket if I was still sober or sometimes all over the carpet if I wasn't (laughs) but so I was doing really good on the champagne commissions but I wanted to be a dancer so also I had this um, waitress named Esther who was older I'm saying this in air quotes because she was probably like 22 but (laughs) yeah yeah but um so she was telling me all the ropes of stuff. Anyway, so I went from being uh, a waitress there to being a dancer. And when you were a dancer, you'd make about some, I mean, when you were a waitress, you'd make about 50 to $75 a night. And my rent there was like $25 a month in New York. But when a dancer, like you can make 300 to $500 a night in those days, which is like, I think as much as strippers make now, but or maybe more, but yeah. you got to remember the rent. Like, like, that's just the idea. That's just... Oh, my God. I wish I could time travel. Oh, it was fucking insane. And then there's all these other things I could tell you about the strip club. But so the first date I had in New York didn't come from that. But it was after I'd already been doing that for a while there to live. And so me and Kid Congo, who wasn't Kid Congo then, our favorite band was the Cramps. And we'd met them the year before the first time they came to L.A. And we'd stayed in touch with them. And we used to go to Lux and Ivy's house and like. They were kind of like our punk rock parents. So we went to go see them at Max's Kansas City, mm-hmm. which we went all the time. And what, what me and Kid used to do would be pandle, panhandle our way up the Bowery, you know, so that we'd have enough money to buy a drink at happy hour doing Max's because then they had this whole buffet that you could eat off of. And that was how we ate dinner almost every night, no matter who was playing. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, but so... We were going there to see the cramps and Kid had this like boom box or it, it wasn't like a big giant 80s boom box yet at that point, but it, it might have even just been like a radio shack fucking cassette player or something. But we had taken all this acid and we we're sitting there in, at the front tables with our feet up on the monitors and the, the tape record was on the stage and um, we were so fucking frying on acid <laughs> In between every song, we both scream, crazy nightmare. I'm having a crazy nightmare. (laughs) People actually have told us, like, in in the many years since then, oh, there's like a, there's a bootleg record of that out, or I have a bootleg instead of it, and we didn't know that that was you, I didn't know what that was, like, until they started seeing, like, social media posts. That's amazing. But, um, so... After that show where we were so frying, I was standing in the hallway of um, of Max's up near the dressing rooms, and they had this stucco walls that kind of looked like, to me, an acid at that point, but maybe also in real life, I don't remember. It looked like those old Betty Crocker <laughs> cake commercials where they're swirling the frosting on with a knife, and I was just kind of staring at it, and I was, I was like so fucking high, it wasn't even real. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I hear this whisper in my ear, Nice wall, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and he turned around, and it was Brian Gregory. No way. Well, of course, because he had just played, and we kind of knew each other anyway from when they were in L.A., but yeah. he just, like, 
he whispered into it confidentially in my ear, like, like, it was like the secret password. Yeah. For, I know you're fucking high out of your mind on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> and I just turned and looked at him, and I'm sure my pupils were like, you know. He saw you were like in a trance. Yeah, he kind of gently nudged you out of it. <laughs> anyway. That's so funny. He asked me out that night, and I had never been on a real date. So, um, I didn't say that. I mean, I could hardly talk because it really was a nice wall. (laughs) And I was really fucking into it. (laughs) This episode of Muses is sponsored by Best Fiends. Have you downloaded Best Fiends yet? We Muses cannot get enough. Best Fiends' challenging puzzles engage your brain with their fun storylines, beautiful visual designs, and adorable collectible characters. I just passed level 45. That's 15 levels since last time. I love it because you can spend as much or as little time as you'd like in the game and pick up right where you left off. I enjoy stimulating my brain when I'm not recording or doing research for this podcast, and it even helps me wind down after a long day. Best Fiends has a roster of adorable characters to choose from whose special skills get stronger the more you upgrade them, and make sure you do. It'll help you as you level up. Best Fiends is also updated monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. We're currently loving the St. Patrick's Leprechaun event they have on right now. Best Fiends does not require the internet to play, so it's great for traveling and you can play it anywhere. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Anyway, so... A night or two later, I can't remember if it was the next night. I think it might have been the night after because I was I was frying and I was already drunk and shit. He shows up in a she- at checker cab with roses, you know, like a little bouquet of roses Aww. that have baby's breath. And so he took me. Oh, and also Bradley Field from Teenage Jesus was like, oh, you're going out with Brian. Oh, <laughs> you're going on a date. And I didn't want to tell him that I'd never been on a date before because that would seem really lame but also like he liked to make fun of everything you know yeah so i just didn't say anything so we went to this bar called the nightbirds and i'd really aside from the strip club never been in a bar before either because in la they carted the fuck out of you because you Uh, had to be a few years older and like i said i looked like a fetus i had i had a total baby face and and until i was about 45 (laughs) anyway so we go into this bar and it, it was a total like lower east side dive bar but it was run by these Asian women and it still had like, you know, like a hellish linoleum floor and, you know, it just looked like a dive bar. But the, and the jukebox was really old and it had all this beautiful neon on it. And so Brian goes, what do you want to drink? And like I said, I'd only been drinking beer or like straight out of the bottle, like an alley. So I said, what are you having? And he said, like a vodka tonic. And I said, oh, I'll have that. You know, I'll yep. just have what you're having because I was like, oh, I can't go wrong. <laughs> I just had a crazy deja vu about what this or something else this exact thing you ordering the drink me thinking what i'm thinking when you're speaking this exact conversation (laughs) interesting anyway so after you know i told him i'd have what he was having and then he handed me like a uh, like a handful of quarters and said go play something on the jukebox and i I like was walking across the room like in slow-mo and i was like wow this is so adult i'm actually in a bar (laughs) (laughs) on a date yeah, on a date in a bar, I got flowers. I'm having like a mixed drink. Uh, so adult. I was, yeah, it was so adult. I was so impressed. 
Anyway, so I just played some stuff on the jukebox and we got completely fucking wasted there. And then we got another checker cab. And I'm saying checker cabs because in those days on the Bowery and in New York City, they had all the 1950s checker cabs were still running. Wow. Like the big giant checker marathons. And they had those little jump seats in the back. They were so fucking awesome. That's so cool. Anyway, so we're going way up the Lower East Side. I mean, we're going from the Lower East Side to the Upper East Side. And I kind of blacked out a little bit in the cab. I mean, you know, I didn't pass out, but I just I, I just remember next thing I know, we're walking into this crazy place that was like on the second story of some building, and I didn't even see a sign outside. And when we got in, it was like a scene out of the movie Cabaret, yeah. um, but without without Joel Grey as the MC and without Liza Minnelli, but there was all these like, there was like a German oompa band on stage and there was all these waitresses wearing like dirndls and corsets with their boobs all up. But they were all like, I think they were really old. And I say that and I'm trying to like remember how young I was. But some of them, when I thought they were really old, they might have been in their 30s. But there was others that were like literally probably 65 and yeah. over with like gray bouffant hair and wow. like total helmet grandma hair, but still with their boobs up and in the little dirndls. And they all came running towards him as soon as we walked in the door. And and they were all German, too. And this was, this wasn't just because I was, like, drinking. They were like, oh, hey, Brian. Oh, Brian. Oh, Brian. Oh, Shotzi. Like that. And I was like, wow, what the fuck's happening here? Like, I thought maybe we were just going to, like, some weird place. But then it was apparent that he knew a lot of them. Yeah, he's a regular. He knew the staff. <laughs> yeah. And so there was this one lady being, like, really fucking mean to me. And I couldn't figure it out because I was just being... All the other ones were like all nice. And then this lady was like, well, where's your ID? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like papers, please. Like, yeah. like, in a, like in a Nazi <laughs> World War II movie or something. And so Brian was like talking to her and then like moved away from the table and went off and talked to her. And then he came back and it seemed like it was okay. And I, I was already so wasted. It, it didn't matter, but it did seem a little bit weird. So anyway... I don't really remember a lot of what happened except for that lady was really mean to me. And then he dropped me off like we met a little bit in the cab and, you know, he walked me up to the door and it was so hungover the next day. And then the next day, like Bradley Field and Christian were sitting there grilling me. So what was your date like? What was your date like? And then um, I was like, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's nice. We went to the Nightbirds and they're like, oh, you went to the Nightbirds? Did you go anywhere else? And I was like, yeah, we went to some like, I don't know, like some German place or something and and then Bradley Field started going you know yeah I don't know if Brian's ever like dated someone that was as young as you before and I was like what do you mean thinking like he would date like 22 year old and he's like he likes old ladies and I was like what do you mean and he's like really old ladies like old ladies like senior citizens and I was like <laughs> really <laughs> and, then, and I was all I was so fucking hungover and to be that hungover at that age you know I drank a lot um, he's like, yeah, he says he likes them because their skin is really soft. And when he said it, he looked like Uncle Fester or Pugsley or something, you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, because I didn't want to say, oh, yeah, there was this like fucking like 70 year old barmaid in a journal that seemed to really hate me last well, that's why we need to figure that out. My goodness. My grandma had the softest skin. <laughs> Brian Gregory would have loved her. He was he was so nice. I, I have a bunch of letters from him somewhere. Was there a second date? Oh, yeah. We saw each other a lot. That's cool. And like out here, too, when you come out here. And he used to write me really cool letters, like on specially made stationery, which like in the 70s was really expensive because it was like offset printing. He had 
he had this like beige beige cream like very heavy cards that had like the whole border was pentagrams and stuff and mm-hmm. his his handwriting looked like a 15 year old cheerleader or like a junior high cheerleader like all the eyes were his writing was very scrolly and fancy and all the eyes were like dotted with hearts i'm not making this up and he always called me either princess or kitten and he'd say how's how's school going and so, <laughs> yeah you were the youngin in his life <laughs> yeah clearly <laughs> hung out with guys in bands and we would like to talk to you because it's not always that we get to have this conversation we talk about musicians and women who have been in bands but we haven't interviewed a whole lot so can you tell us about some of the bands you've been in what instrument did you play did you enjoy it um i the only instrument that i played in any of my bands was tambourine but i did write almost all of the songs and i never I didn't play guitar, but I knew I would hum the guitar riffs to people because I knew exactly like right now, even even yesterday I posted on Twitter, <laughs> which like just when I, whenever I say shit like that, it feels surreal because I grew up in the not internet only landline time. But I had the um, yesterday I had the the whole guitar solo from Liar by Queen in my head. And so I wrote it on Twitter. Am I just writing this because this is Super Tuesday and I don't trust any politician because they're all lion-ass liars? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, now you know when we recorded this podcast. Um, But um, so I knew how the guitar guitar riffs or or hooks or, or stuff were supposed to go. But anytime I tried to learn how to play guitar, even when I didn't have nails, I would just like try to go to someone that play guitar really well, which was a lot of my friends, but they go, just go like this. And they'd be like, you know, like doing it and be like, what? Like they wouldn't just show me a chord. So I was finally like, fuck it. Okay. I know I want this to go or whatever. I would just like make the noises. But so I, I'd been writing songs for years, including like knowing what the melodies were and what I was going to sing. And in, in punk rock, which I say that, like, it sounds like I'm saying like in medieval times or in the paleolithic era, but in um during punk rock a lot of us had what we, we what we later started calling fake bands because it was like it wasn't supposed to be a fake band you were trying to put a band together but unless someone had an older brother or sister or a neighbor that had like a drum kit or owned a PA or had a bass or something like that shit was expensive and mm-hmm. we were all teenagers so i had a couple of bands that never got off the ground that we call like fake yeah. fake bands were you supposed to be in the germs as well Yes, yeah. but I didn't know how to play anything, Yeah, you know. And anyway, you know, and I didn't have a drum kit like, like Donna Rhea had or, you know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so um, Jeffrey Lee Pierce was the person that got me into being in bands because he kept saying to me, you need to be a lead singer, you need to be a lead singer. And he did this to Texacala Jones from Tex and the Horseheads too, and he had done it to her right before he did it to me. 
but he kept saying, you need to be in a band. And I'd be like, no, I don't want to. I don't really want to. I don't have the time to put it together. And so one day he just came up to me and he's like, you need to be in a band. And I was like, no, like, I don't know. You know, I don't have the time to do it. And he's like, that's okay, because I already put a band together for you. So (laughs) he'd drive into Hollywood and pick me up and take me out to band rehearsal at his mom's house. And he had the whole band together. And it was Brad Dunning who later went on to be in the gun club with him. And um, a guy named John Oliphant on bass and Johnny Nation on guitar and Jeff on guitar. And Jeff had picked out like all these like songs that we were going to do as covers. It was sort of rockabilly and sort of bluesy. And then I had a couple of songs that I had already written and I like hummed like, you know, the guitar parts to him and we did that. And so we had one gig. It was called The Cyclones. And it was on September 18th at Gazari's. <laughs> on Sunset Strip, which was kind of like it later turned into a big hair metal place. But at this point, it was just at the tilting point from being like a strip club that occasionally had bands. Yeah. And so our band was called the Cyclones. That was what I named it. And um, me and Brad had sort of been seeing each other, but we always had all these like fights because I always liked guys that were in bands or like but Brad got really mad about Billy Idol one time. <laughs> Sorry, Brad. I'd, I still love you. I'd marry you right now. And you know that. <laughs> anyway, so we were rehearsing in this living room and Brad would say to Jeff, like, tell the singer she's off key. And I'd be like, tell the drummer to shut up. I mean, we wouldn't even like talk to each other. Anyway, so we got on stage and we'd all been drinking. We did a few songs and then somehow... Jeff started it. A fist fight broke out on stage. And then the next thing we know, like, there was, like, total craziness. And then amps started flying through the air. And people from the audience started running up and joining in on the fight. And I just ran off the stage. So, oh, my God. That was, like, the only time that we ever played. But then people from... Bla- and we opened for the Go-Go's and the last. And... <laughs> And I, and I mean, I don't even remember if we got that gig because Belinda was my roommate or if it was just like an yeah, accidental gig, but, but that's what it was. But then people from Black Flag were in the audience and they asked us to open for them the next no week. No way. Yeah, because they thought it was like the most punk rock thing they've ever seen, like with equipment flying and like fucking mic stands breaking over band members' heads that another band member was doing it, like. Well, I love how it turned into a success. Yeah. Anyway, so then after that, I decided I wanted to start a band. But then also, also because I was friends with like, I was really good friends with Joan Jett and um, Belinda was, you know, about to be my roommate, but we were already really good friends at that point. I was like, I just want an all girl band. I don't want to deal with testosterone. I want to deal with fucking fist fights on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I knew it was going to be called the Screaming Sirens because of the sirens in mythology, you know, and because they drove men to their death. Perfect. <laughs> that, yeah. Perfect that was, name. That, that was good for me. And then um, I had this dream where we all had to look like a cross between like Hell's Angels and Miss Kitty from Gunsmoke. And we were going to play music like um, like Kitty Wells and Patsy Cline, but with Andrew's sister's harmonies. But everyone that was in the band, which was Jenny Shore from Backstage Pass, which was an all awesome, all groupy band. She was um, playing guitar. And then um, Fur Dixon, that later also went on to be in the Cramps, was our bass player. Mm-hmm. But it didn't start with those two. I thought I have to start with the drummer because female drummers were so difficult to find. A lot of girls played bass. 
it was hard harder to find a good girl guitarist, but like a girl drummer was unheard of. And the only one I could think of was Boom Boom Dixon, who later the reason for Dixon's name was was because she married Boom Boom's brother. That was Gary Dixon. Anyway, Boom Boom and I always like we'd show at a club, show up at a club somewhere, and I'd see her getting thrown out or literally like being dragged out by a bouncer and she'd be like kicking and screaming because she had like caused a fight and there'd be like breaking glass all over the place and I would just roll my eyes and go that girl is such a fucking loser like what what a wreck what a shit show you know but then that was me every other night too yeah, yeah. and boom boom had the same impression of me <laughs> and so but she was such a talented drummer and she was in this rockabilly band called um keith joe dick and I can't, I can't remember what the rest of but that was his real name he was from ohio so there was this paper that was kind of like how craigslist was but it was an actual you know hard copy paper called the recycler and i put ads in there for a female drummer and of course no one answered it so finally i was like i need a fucking good girl drummer and so i got boom boom's number from somewhere and they called her up on my landline and it was like hey boom boom is this boom boom and she's like yeah who's this and I was like, it's pleasant. And the phone went totally like quiet, <laughs> like an uncomfortable amount of silence. <laughs> Hi, Boom Boom. And then, who is this? <laughs> it's pleasant. And she'd be like, oh. And I was like, what are you doing? And she said, folding laundry. <laughs> and so then I said, oh, well, do you want to start a band with me? <laughs> Then it was another few moments of absolute dead silence. And she said, what do you mean? <laughs> and so I said, well, I think we we should meet in person to talk about it. And so she, so she met me. And then like we started, I was telling her my whole concept. And then by the end, we were circling around each other like wolves for real. I mean, like looking at each other, like who's going to attack the other yeah. one first? And then nothing happened. And then I was telling her like kind of the music that I wanted and the sound I heard. And then. She started singing these songs to me that she had written and stuff. And then by the end of that meeting, I don't know if we were like good friends, but we're like, yeah, we're going to start a band. Mm -hmm. And so then we started working on it. And it was like, it was fucking like ridiculous. So, yeah, we started we started this Scream and Sirens. And um, our first gig was opening for Los Lobos. And then we got signed pretty quickly to Enigma Records. We made an album. We had an English single. We had songs in all sorts of movies like Rock and Roll High School and a Roger Corman movie called Vendetta where we were like the band at the club. We played twice while like the girl who wound up in jail's like little sister was getting raped or something. <laughs> um, anyway, we, we toured like all over the place and had other other records out. And the Screaming Sirens was like probably one of the wildest rides I've ever been on in my life. It and was- you had groupies. Oh, we did. We had we called them love slaves, <laughs> and we had a song called "Love Slave." Nice. And actually, when we were in your country, <laughs> we started. We did something one night because a guy was being so annoying. So I had a handcuff belt on. So I told the guy to come up on stage, and I like kissed him. And then I snapped one of my handcuffs on him, and then I handcuffed him to a pole in the middle of the stage in in this club in Vancouver. Uh, called the town pump and then then the next day all these people like we were were doing like a little residency there for a few days but then before it even started all these people were either sending waiters backstage or asking us can I be the guy that's like like handcuffed to the pool tonight like they thought it was something that we did all the time so then we turned it into that 
And so there'd always be like a guy handcuffed to the oh. pole on stage there. And then it, we started doing that all over the place. That is incredible. <laughs> I'll be your love slave. And tell us about the other bands. So the other bands I had after after and concurrently with the Sirens was the next band was called the Ringling Sisters, and it was an all-girl band, but it didn't start out as a band. It started out as me and my roommate, Iris Berry, who's now, you know, she has Punk Hostage Press, and she's published like over 40 books, and uh, my book, Showgirl Confidential, was one of them, but... um she was my roommate at Disgraceland, and we were we were constantly writing. We kept diaries. We wrote stuff. We were doing spoken word shows all the time, and so we decided to start a um, to start a, a writing group for other women that were lead singers. But it was only going to be literary stuff, not song lyrics. And yeah. we started doing that, and then the next thing you know, that turned into a band because Disgraceland was always full of musicians and all of the other girls' boyfriends or bandmates would come there and they'd hear the stuff that we were writing together jointly mm-hmm. or, like, poems that we were working on or stories. And then one day, like, Dave Catching, who's, you know, he's he's in the Mojave Lords and the Eagles of Death Metal and he's been in, like, a million, hundred million bands, he, he came in and said that um, he and Gary Dixon, who was first, like, you know, ex-husband at that point for Dixon's, they had just like taken some lyrics that they either found on the coffee table at Disgraceland or whatever and put music to it. And then it was just like, okay, I guess we're a band. And so it was kind of like a LA super group. It was like Tex, Akala Jones from Tex and the Horseheads and me and Iris Berry and Debbie Dexter from the Devil Squares and Debbie Patino from a zebra and Jeanette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde. And that was like the lineup. It was like it was like all these lead singers and then with music and then it turned into its own band and we got signed. But then when we in the middle of doing Ringling Sisters uh rehearsals, like everyone would always show up late, like with any band ever on earth at mm-hmm. any time. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, you, you'd get burnt out because, like, someone would get stuck on, like, a chorus or something. So Dave and I would always do stuff off the top of our heads, and he'd start playing some riff to, like, a Hank Williams song, and I would just start making up X-rated lyrics to it, like, off the top of my head. And then it got to the point where, like, I, then I started writing just my own stupid X-rated country songs, and some of them were, like, songs like Oh My Darling Clementine or whatever, you know, a yeah. Hank Williams song. And so we would just play them and we played them all the time in Ringling Sisters rehearsals. And then on his birthday one day, he wanted to be in like three or five bands and he he accomplished most of that. So I was booking a club called Raji's, which was a really famous punk club here. I was like, okay, your birthday can be this night. So he was playing with every band that played that night. And one of them, one of them was called Guns and Rosie Greer. (laughs) 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 And um. So ours, um, we just decided to call it Honk If You're Horny, and it was going to be like a one-night joke. And it was all the X-rated country songs. And then Elvez, Robert Lopez, who'd been in the Zeros from punk rock, he saw us play, and he's like, you want to open up for me? And so 
we were like, uh, uh, I don't know, because it was just supposed to be a one-night joke. And then he was like, please. So we said, okay. So we opened up for him. And then we just started getting all these fucking gigs. But the problem was there was like 15 people in Honk If You're Horny, yeah. including someone that was handcuffed. Noticed a recurring theme yeah. in my life. <laughs> there, was a, there was this guy that was like a pastry chef that I'd met at a club somewhere. And he was bald and kind of portly. And so I said, I want you to be in my band. He's like, but I don't play anything. And I just said, your name's going to be the inbred and you're going to be handcuffed to the drum set. And that's, that's your only job. Except you have to drink, you have to drink like moonshine out of a bottle with a baby bottle nipple on it. So we said, okay. Sounds like a dream job. Yeah. But so we even wound up playing South by Southwest, Honk If You're Horny, because like, Whoever was in charge of it or the CEO at that time called me up and I thought it was a joke at first. I thought it was a prank call because yeah. it was still landline times. So this guy calls me up and he's like, hi, Pleasant. I got your number for blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, and he's like, I want Honk If You're Horny to come to South by Southwest. And half of Honk If You're Horny was in the Ringling Sisters. And then everyone else that was in Honk If You're Horny had real serious bands that were constantly trying to get signed. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I want you to come and play at South by Southwest. And I was just like all hungover and bitchy. So I was like, this isn't even a real band it's a fake band he goes yeah but i still want you to play and i was like what i'm not gonna send you an audition cassette and we're certainly not gonna pay to come out here and he's like no i'm asking you we'll pay for you to come out and i was like what and and then he's like we'll pay for you and i was like there's 15 of us he's like that's okay and i was like okay well we all need hotel rooms too (laughs) that's amazing no and that kind of shit just kept happening with honk up your honey people would be like will you play here and it'd be like, we can't because I, A, I didn't want to call everybody up on a landline. It wasn't just like an email yeah. list. I was like, I'm not going to call all these fucking like French maids and inbreds and cousin Buford <laughs> and fucking the people that sit on on the side of the stage just playing cards or reading Hustler. I'm not yeah. going to call all this. Yeah. And so I go, no, we can't play in San Diego. We'll give you $500. And I was like, no, I don't really think so. And then it's like $800 in two hotel rooms. And I'd be like, make it $1,000 in four hotel rooms. And they'd always say, okay. And then we were like, this is fucking insane. And we yeah. wound up getting like, I was I was like on the bottom of a pig pile of about 14 people, which was half Honk Up Your Horny and half the audience. And Lee Joseph from Hell Yeah Records came up to me and, and we were all on mushrooms. The whole band was on mushrooms. We never played sober. I was laying at the bottom of it and he's like, I want to sign you guys. I want to make a record with you guys. And I was like, can you talk to me tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so he did. We signed a record deal with him. And then somehow... We wound up filming like a fucking video with like a stuffed cow and just all this other horrifying shit in the in the backyard here at my house. And it, it somehow it went into regular rotation on European MTV and it was a huge hit on there. That is such a wild story. When you don't expect it and it becomes some sort of, you know, massive success, that's like... No, it was nuts. Want me to sing you some of the... Uh, I'll sing you a little part please. of it. Okay, so the, the song that I'm about to sing you is... It was meant as a field holler, meaning it was an a cappella song, and we were all just like clapping hands and stomping our feet, and we'd get the jo- the audience to join in. Cows, cows, they got pretty brown eyes. When you're having sex, their tails swat away the flies. Cows, 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 sex in all weather. Wear their pussies out, then cut them up for leather. Cows, cows. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> And then it just went, there was a, there was like lyrics about every farm animal you could think of. And then this was right around the time all those um, rumors (laughs) were circulating about Richard Gere with the gerbils. So I couldn't figure out anything that rhymed with gerbils. So I was like, 
Mice, mice, they're so cute and they're tiny. They found a dozen of Richard Gere's Heine. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last verse, dogs, dogs, they're faithful and they're dumb. Smear some dog food on your pussy and they'll lick you till you come. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the many reasons why I have my entire whole VIP section in hell. Um, but <laughs> I actually wanted to talk to you a bit about the running kind because... That movie is on YouTube. Anyone can look it up. I got to watch it recently, and it was so cool to get to see you performing because, you know, I wasn't around then to see you live, and you were amazing. Thank you. And your hair in that movie is just incredible. (laughs) And you wrote the film. Yes, I co-wrote the film with Max Tash, and also that house that was in it, that was Disgraceland. Yeah. That's Disgraceland. We filmed it there, and we filmed it at Raggi's, which I was booking, and at all the after-hours clubs, and all the extras in it were real people. Yeah, it it feels real, and uh, yeah, you got some great set pieces there, and yeah, I was just curious, like, how did that come about? That came about because Max Max Tash was like a producer at WKRP in Cincinnati, you know, the TV show. And um, he, for some reason, wanted to write, like, he wanted to write a script about an all-girl band. And so he interviewed the Go-Go's, the Bangles, and the Screamin' Sirens. And um, the Go-Go's and the the Bangles, like, the Go-Go's were just getting, like, I mean, they were already really famous, Yeah, you know? And the Bangles were, like just under them and then we were like at a different level we were like at street level i mean we had records out but it was indie you know we weren't yeah we didn't have prince writing us songs and we weren't the go-go's and stuff but so i had more time to spend with him and then he knew that i was a writer and he started seeing stuff i wrote so i told him to come to a couple of our gigs and he did and then he said do you want to co-write this with me because i think you can like add some things that are realistic to it and I said well let me see the script because I didn't know what it was going to be like and I wasn't saying it like a snob but I just of course wanted to see what it was going to be like and also what kind of what his intent was and how yeah, he and wrote it you and stuff add. yeah and so I read it and then he said well what do you think and I was like this would never happen that dialogue would never happen this is implausible this would happen like here instead of you know the thing that you wrote and then he just said will you will you co-write it with me and I said sure and so we did. And then he raised the funds because it was going to be an indie film. But then somehow it got picked up by MGM. Yeah. And then so that was amazing, except for the fact that their marketing department was so fucking stupid. Why would they not open a film in L.A.? Why would you open a film in Houston, Texas? Because that's what they said. That's where it will do well. And it was like, what? this is filmed all in it's L.A. An LA story. And, and it's an L.A. story. And everyone that's in the film that wasn't an actor is from LA. Yeah. Like we, we argued and they wouldn't, they wouldn't hear of it because in those days they didn't listen to like quote, quote the creatives, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but it was filmed in all the clubs, every club that you see in there is a real club from LA at the time. Oh my God. When I, when they were figuring out who was going to be Tyler, like my boyfriend in the movie, like of course everybody that I had slept with or hung out with or played with or all of the above mm-hmm. was trying out for that part and I swear to God each and every person <laughs> after the audition they were like yeah, I just did the audition <laughs> and I was like cool how'd it go and they was like I think it's gonna I think it's gonna happen because we have chemistry <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to say like oh yeah like that's what they all said <laughs> 
<laughs> but I did have chemistry with all of them. And the one that the one that it wound up being Joe Wood from TSOL. I mean, I definitely had chemistry with him on screen and off screen. So it was fine. Nice. Yeah, you were great in it. Thank you. Did you always were you always like an actor? Do you think that was, I like, was my 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 mom was an actor and um you know she'd been on Broadway and stuff and I started acting when I was eight but this one I wasn't even like really acting I mean it was just like it's like your life yeah it was yeah. my life but also I had to like say stuff like a character so yeah but it was good but I have to tell you that there's this one scene on the roof there where now I've seen it and I was like oh my god that's so beautiful but the first time I saw it at the first screening seeing your face up there like on a giant movie screen and just sat and I burst into tears and I just had to, because it looked horrifying to me. It was horrifying. I was like, oh my God, I look so ugly. That's so scary. And the the lighting guy, Marvin, I can't remember his last name. Sorry, Marvin. Um, but he was such, he spent so much time lighting it. And he's like, this is my best work. This is my Aww. best work. And I don't want to say I look horrible. But it was because my but face looked, was like 12 feet tall. You've looked back on it and you've seen the beauty in it. Oh my God. I looked back on it and I was like, where the fuck my collagen yeah. at? No. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, it's beautiful. It's beautifully lit. But that was that was like no one prepares you for seeing like a close up like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can't even imagine. Especially and, and plus, like, like not only that, like I wrote the words to. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was. It was just like it was. Too it must much. have been really surreal. Yeah, it was. It was completely surreal. Wow. Whoops, I just realized the microphone's like a foot and a half from my face. Now. It's all right. It's all good. We got it under control. <laughs> but yeah, so you if you guys. You can see the run in kind in its entirety on YouTube, and you can also see a lot of other movies that I was in on YouTube, like um, Thrashing, the full movies on YouTube. And I won't even go into that now, but um, through rock and roll, I started hanging out with a bunch of skateboarders and writing for Thrashing magazine. And mm-hmm. that was all that was was it was a skateboarding movie with everyone we knew and everyone that my band the screaming sirens was sleeping with and everyone was on acid the whole yeah. time i mean that was like like alan Sachs was so patient <laughs> and we used to do stuff on that movie to to fuck up the continuity which i wouldn't have said then but now i think we'd be on the <laughs> statute of limitations like we would change clothes in the same scene and for some reason nobody on the phone would <laughs> notice <laughs> that's why you need someone keeping an eye on the continuity yeah i'm sure that shit happened on the running kind but we were more conscious of not fucking it up on purpose because it was also my movie that is ridiculous so i have like a million more questions but we're kind of running out of time here and we have a couple more things i want to mention so everyone knows first of all you have an exhibit coming up here in la yes it's um it's april 3rd is the opening party for it and the show is called Paper, Scissors, Rock, which came to me in a dream. Paper, Scissors, Rock, 40 Years of Fanzines and Flyers by me, Pleasant Gaiman. And it's a, it's just a retrospective of like everything I've done since from 1978 to the present. And it's, there's, a, there's a lot of shit. <laughs> like, I'm, it was such a pleasure to be able to see them, like the actual copies that you have tonight. Like, thank you so much for bringing them out and showing them to us. The most excited I've seen Lynx on this trip so far was one, when she was drinking orange juice. <laughs> and secondly, when she was looking through all those flyers and more so excited for the flyers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was so cool. And you're like. And the zines. 
they're so beautiful and thank you you did a like a fantastic job and there's so many of them i know i can't even believe it anyway that that show opens at the burgundy room gallery on coenga avenue in hollywood on april 3rd and it stays up for two weeks the closing party is april 16th so if anyone's in la come and see it at some point at the gallery or come to the opening or closing party and then um I've always got a million other tricks up my sleeve. I do I do a show called Bell Book and Candle, which is an all witch burlesque show run by witches for witches. It's all occult and that's the third Wednesday of every month at El Cid in the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles. What else? I don't even know. I'm, you do tarot on Instagram? Yeah, I do tarot on Instagram and I do it at a store called The Green Man in North Hollywood and you can always find me for a tarot reading at pleasantgaming.com or if you want to see other crazy old punk rock pictures or my Instagram is princess of Hollywood. Perfect. And then finally, right around the time that this comes out or, you know, in and around that time, give or take a few weeks, you have a podcast. Yes, I have a podcast upcoming it's called The Devil's Music, and it's all rock and roll and occult. And I actually just interviewed Shanti and Lynx for it. So we that's... had a lot of fun. Yeah, you're. I can't wait to listen to everybody else that. Yeah, you don't speak say with. who's going to be on it yet. It's a, a big surprise. You guys not are not going to believe the first guest. That's all I'm saying. That's true. That's true. So you've got a big, uh, a big first episode, and it's on the Pantheon Network. Yes, it is. We're podcast sisters. We're in the same family. I know. We're, we're, we're podcast sisters and pantheon sisters and panty sisters and panty sisters. Chanty panty sisters. This, the panty sisters is a spinoff podcast <laughs> with all of us in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm that's kind it. of what we just did right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Miss Pamela has to get in on it too. Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't that be We'll like have a super group podcast. Yes. Hell yeah. All the lead singers getting together. Wait, <laughs> sounds familiar. <laughs> All right, Pleasant, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, you, you girls. You being our first interview and then three years later being here with you in Hollywood in your home yeah. is And you know I'm a dream for us. you again sometime soon. We got to do this again because I got questions. <laughs> <laughs> and she's got stories. Exactly. I know they never end. That's the scary part. That's why I love it, though. Thank you so much. I hope you guys all enjoyed, and we'll see you next time. Mwah. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. 
So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make Season 2 even more memorable together.